this is Donna Otto, and we're talking about marriage. And if you have missed the earlier shows, if you are brand new to us, I hope you'll go back and listen to Married for Life or The Nine Essentials of Marriage. Um, today, we're going to talk about two of those essentials, and they're standalones. So whatever you hear of this series, I would love you to hear all of it, of course, because I've can piled it so it's useful as a one big tool. But it would take me three hours to teach it, so I'm going to do it in bite-sized portions. And um, so far, I've given you the list. The list will show up as a free resource called The Nine Essentials of Marriage. So what is the institution of marriage? Oh, first of all, let's talk a minute about what the picture of marriage is in America. I remember watching a black and white series on Turner Classic Movies called The Thin Man. Now, The Thin Man himself was, I can't remember the actor's name. He was pretty popular in those days. But he, he, his, Powell, uh, Dick Powell, and, but he drank like a fish. He, he got, I, I honestly think if I can recall it, he would get out of his bed and he'd have a glass of, you know, some kind of bourbon or scotch or something in his hand. He had a glass at the meals. He had a glass, they had martini glasses. They were always drinking, okay, always drinking. But they never slept together. He had a twin bed, and she had a twin bed, and there was four feet between them, and he wore pajamas, and she had a nightgown on that covered her up completely. And I remember as an adult watching that thinking, I think culture has always dictated to us. Um, Francis Schaeffer, I say that every month, at least once a month, the spirit of the age seeps into the church, and you are the church. And Francis Schaeffer was a philosopher who came to faith late in his life. If you've never read anything of his, just go online and buy one. And his wife was Edith. She only wrote a few, go online and buy one of them. Precious people, precious people, smart people, dedicated people. They had servant heart. And that line, the spirit of the age seeps into the church, came to me in a flash because I thought, yeah, I'm the church. And I can tell you many things that I have allowed to seep into me, the church. Some of them are good for me. They're good for me because I'm too serious and I could have a little more fun. And some of the shows I watch on television are just fun and laughable and they're good for me. But this notion of marriage the real institution of marriage is not seeping into the culture. The culture seeps into us. And in that culture, we were taught that men slept in one bed and a woman slept in another bed. We just didn't talk about the fact that we slept together or how we made babies. We didn't talk about it, but we drank like fish. And then there was the era of smoking like chimneys. Everywhere you look, there was somebody with a cigarette in their hand. And that was the spirit of that age culture seeping into the culture. Now, we don't smoke anymore. That's taboo. It's very, it's not good for us. I know a lot of people still smoke, obviously. So I want you to know that when you, when we approach these essentials, these 
essentials to marriage, God's, God's formula for marriage, they are not what you're going to see on the cover of your magazines or in the shows on television. What we see on television, the majority of are non-married couples. They are couples living together. They are young groups of people who are looking for men and women to date, to sleep with. Sex is a prominent conversation on television, but not healthy intimacy, sex that God calls to procreate him. So the Bible affirms that men and women were created for one another, and it affirms that it is good that a man should not be alone, man or woman, but man was created first. And so God created a helper, a companion, a confidant. She was flesh of his flesh, and she was his counterpart. He A counterpart. And that's very different than underneath him or inside of him or the things we've heard talked about even in the Christian community. Given from God to him, the woman was an amazing gift. She was his helpmate. I think we can rush over this whole thing, but the reality is that that is a receiving and giving cycle. Did Adam receive her as a gift or did it all just start? Did she understand what prize she was, that God had made her to live with the one only man in the world, the first of all men? She represents God no matter what Adam's, what that means to Adam, but it was Adam's helper. This point seems to be lost in line with all the concerns about submissions and roles. And I think that receiving and giving cycle is extremely important. God's giving, God, Adam's receiving, Adam's giving to his helpmate. She is so enough. She is so enough that God calls him to leave mother and father and become one with that woman. Those are the two passages. Um, I read one of them earlier this month, but I'm going to read both of them to you again. Matthew chapter 9, and it's 4, 5, and 6, but I might just read 6, and he says, uh, 5 and 6, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. What does that mean? That means so close, so intimate, so personal that they are one flesh. Does that mean they're exactly alike? No, don't you wish they were? I kind of wish David were. Now, I don't want to be bald like him, and he doesn't want to have a big nose like me. But there are times when I wish he was just like me, and we didn't have to go through all this dancing around because he thinks very differently about it than I do. And then he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, let no man or woman separate. And then in Mark... Just the next book over in the Gospels, chapter 10, verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So he doesn't mention this just one time. He mentions it twice. He joins together. He asks them to become one. He says the reason for this is for procreation, for being a gift from God, and that one whole not two lookalikes would come together. One whole, not two lookalikes. So as much as I say, I wish David would just turn into me, it would be easier. I would be bored silly with that first. 
And it would be useless, because certainly no, the world does not need two of me. We might need two of David, but we don't need two of me. And, and so here is this piece that we miss sometimes. It, it was for procreation, so the world would go on. That was a part of what God called us to. And I have taught a lesson for many years called procreation and pleasure, because I believe that was exactly what God called intimacy, the sexual act between men and women to be, so they would procreate. And I believe that marriage was a gift from God, and that I am a gift to David, and he is a gift to me, and that the two of us are to come together and be one, one whole, and one different than either one of us are separately. So this institution of marriage is not my idea. It's not your pastor's idea. It's not the reason that we get married in the sight of God. We get married in the sight of God with brothers and sisters because it was God's institution. And I think it's really important that you remember that. If you made a little flashcards of these nine items and put them on your refrigerator or put them around the house, um, when we moved into our new house 10 years ago, I took pictures of my husband, just irregular, unusual pictures, and I put them all around the house. One's in my food pantry. He's, he's uh, uh, steering a boat. One's in my laundry room. It's a picture his mother had on her bedside next to her bed. I have them all around the little places that I open and close often. That picture reminds me about this institution of marriage and that we're not going to look like David, we're not going to look like Donna, we're going to look like a new hole called the Ottos, the David Donna Ottos. The second one we're going to talk about today is forgiveness and reconciliation. And I really need, okay, three days to talk about this. I need a chalkboard. I need so many things to draw this clear to you. But I want to say one sentence, and if you have to disconnect right now, if you would just chew on this one sentence. In every other relationship we have in the world, we can offer forgiveness and give forgiveness even if the other person isn't interested. And we can be whole before the Lord. But the perfect plan for God in forgiveness is to come all the way full circle from the sin, from the damage, from the bump, from the hurt, from the pain, to go all the way through the steps, acknowledgement and confession and restitution if it can be made and forgiveness and all the way around to reconciliation. And reconciliation and forgiveness are essential in marriage. One without the other keeps the two from being whole. W-H-O-L-E. Keeps the two from being holy. H-O-L-Y. Now, I love circles, so I created this model in a circle. I don't think we've ever put it up. Maybe I'll get a model made for you put it up as a resource. Maybe I won't. But this circle is a circle that never ends. It just keeps coming around. It keeps coming around because there are sins and offenses. We do it all the time to one another. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we don't do it intentionally. Sometimes it just happens. That is the part of marriage that I doubt I'll talk about this time. But that's the social part that you just learn to have a social grace with one another. Some things that you just don't even mention. It just don't even mention the toothpaste 
the toothpaste container. He doesn't roll it up from the bottom. He doesn't roll it up from the bottom. He doesn't even put the lid back on the top. Just eeks out of it. Do you want to talk about that? No, it's not worth even mentioning. Because these little offenses go on and on and on, and I do the same. But the sin offense that we do to one another, that we need to acknowledge, we need to acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Somewhere down the road this year, we'll talk about preview and review in your private worship time. But I need to acknowledge my sin before God, and he's very willing to tell it to me. And then I need to go and confess it to David. I need to say that I have sinned and I'm caught and I'm sorry. And I'd really like to just cut bait and run and just not mention it again. But that's where that cycle breaks and then there's no forgiveness and there's no reconciliation. It just keeps building up and up and up like a mountain. And then comes after confession, repentance. So even after I acknowledge my sin, even after I confess it to God, I have to confess it to David, and I have to be repentant. And it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. But the reality is that repentance is changing my behavior. So I can go back a million times. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather used to say, this very broken Persian accent, sorry, sorry, no good. Sorry, no good. And I didn't understand that. But, you know, I'm sorry is no good. I'm sorry is usually I just am in trouble. Could I get out of trouble and just move on? But repentance in this thing called marriage, God's institution, is essential because it's your kindness, your forgiving him, that leads to his repentance. And his repentance is turning away from this behavior. You notice I'm talking about his sin, not my sin. <laughs> I don't do it. I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you what your husband might do to you. It is that repentance. And you know what? You, you don't usually stop a behavior in an instant and it's over. Usually you turn away from it and you still get suckered in. But now you can see and he can see that you are making a move to stop this behavior. And then there is forgiveness. And forgiveness is found in First John 1 and 9. We've been in the faith at all for at any length of time that you know it by heart. He is faithful to forgive. We are faithful to acknowledge our sins and ask for forgiveness. And then sometimes there is restitution. There, the, you broke it, and you can fix it. Something you literally, I had to make restitution when I stole the bag of M&Ms. My mother marched me down to the little candy store at the corner of our block, and I had to make restitution for the bag of M&Ms I took. Sometimes you can make restitution. Sometimes you can't. You just can't. But if it's a possibility, you should do it. And then lastly comes the reconciliation. And this is being at peace. Now, in marriage, if one of you is willing to go through the cycle, at least that one can find peacefulness. But you can't find reconciliation unless both of you are willing to do it together. Reconciliation on behalf of one is not enough. That's why God sent his son to make reconciliation on our behalf. I've told this story many times. I'm going to tell it again. This will be a longer show. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I want to finish this topic of forgiveness and reconciliation. There were two cars who parked next to each other, car A and car B. I think this is a very masculine picture, but I think it's so, so clever. Wish I thought of it myself. Car A pulls in the parking spot every day. Car B pulls in right next to it, and they park next to each other, and that goes on for years. A, B, B, A. A leaves, B leaves, everybody's happy. 
until one day, A pulls in, parks the car, B pulls in, starts to make the turn, hand slips off the wheel, slams right in to the right side, the passenger door of car A. Oh, he feels terrible and dreadful and awful. And he goes upstairs and he says, I am acknowledging this offense to you. I have just banged up your car. And I'm confessing I did it. I should have kept my hand on the wheel. And I am so sorry. I will never let this kind of accident happen again. Will you forgive me? And then I'll have your car fixed. I'll call up the insurance company. Okay, everybody's on board. We're moving forward. We think he gets the car fixed. And the A car A parks his car in the garage. And he has told the car B the night before. My car is coming home. I'm parking it in my spot tomorrow, but never park next to me again. That is the absence of reconciliation. It, it, it's never going to happen. And if you can't forgive, if you think there's restitution and not making enough, if you think that time will heal, it will not. Time does not heal. Time makes the pain less pain. But rebuilding takes longer than building. <laughs> I hate to edit. I hate to edit. I'm a writer. I hate to edit. I just scratch the whole thing, delete the whole thing, and start afresh. And most often, that's what I do. I'm asking you to be a woman who offers reconciliation. Any break can be forgiven. Any reconciliation can be done. 76 years of unforgiveness in my mother's family. And there was reconciliation at the 76th year. We are not punishers. God is the only one who can issue punishment. And he promises he will handle it in his time. So whatever your man has done, whatever you think is unforgivable, I can tell you that in my lifetime as an older woman dealing with younger women, I can count names. If I had the freedom to, I would call their names of young women who come to me and told me their husbands have had affairs and their husbands are repentant and sorrowful and trying to make restitution, what should they do? And numbers of them, I from time to time drop an email to and say, I'm so happy to watch your family being strong because you were willing to walk through even the indiscretion of having an affair. Matthew 25 and 40 says, you gave me a drink, you fed me, and, and I and the Lord tells the listener this, and the listener says, I didn't even know you, Lord. And he said, every time you went to the crib, every time you touched your husband's head, every time you helped a friend, you did it for me, for you do to the least, you do it to me. And this model works, and it really works in marriage. This is God's plan for reconciliation. And in Isaiah, two of my favorite verses in Scripture, I don't have favorites, but these are two that I rely on. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways always. This institution of marriage, which includes forgiveness and reconciliation, is a big circle, was ordained by God. His ways are higher. And my Father in heaven is the Father who teaches me how to forgive. He has offered his own forgiveness of me and the things that I have done. And the things that I could never forgive, 
Um, so many women say to me, well, this is a sin I could never forgive, are often the very sins that we have to walk through in life, especially in marriage life. Mm-hmm. I remember a woman came to me and I felt so in line with her. She said, I hate lying. I hate deceitfulness. I, I would rather know the hard, cold, awful truth. I just hate it. I, I feel the same way. And, and she said, are you telling me that I have to be willing to over and over again until he changes? And I say, yeah, that's what God is calling you to. Forgiveness that brings you around circle to reconciliation. Oh. This seems so serious and heavy and sad and hard. (sighs) But can I tell you, at the other end of these two essentials are happier marriages, more enjoyable companionship, times together without awkwardness, more honesty, more authenticity, more laughter, more community, and certainly more authentic witnesses to God's plan for marriage. I am Donna Otto, and this is Modern Homemakers. Remember, the common begin and the uncommon finish. I pray that today you will go out and consider finishing in forgiveness and reconciliation in your marriage.